died last week. And I want us to go back and uh, kind of cover that same passage of Scripture. I uh, had not had adequate study on it last week, and I uh, apologize for that. But I want us to go back and look at those first nine verses there and uh, just share with you some things that, that perhaps will make it a little plainer. I'm not trying to cover ground we've already covered, but trying to uh, give you a better understanding of how all of these things that we see in this passage of Scripture, how they, they point to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We'll just read verses one through nine and we'll go back and talk about it. The Lord spake unto Moses saying, speaking to the children of Israel, that they bring me an offering. Of every, man, every man that giveth it willingly with his heart, you shall take my offering. This is the offering which you shall take of them, gold and silver and brass and blue and purple and scarlet and fine linen and goat's hair, and ram skins dyed red, and badger skins, or sea cow skins, your Bible may say, and shittim wood, or acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for anointing oil, and for sweet incense, onyx stones, and stones to be set in the ephod, and in the breastplate, and let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell among them, according to all that I show the, after the patterns of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall you make it. We shared with you last week that God wanted to tabernacle or dwell among his people. This was something new, something that hadn't happened before. While they were in Egypt, and even before they went into Egypt, God had walked with a certain select people down through uh, time. But here he wants to come and dwell among his people. He had brought them out of Egypt. They would traveled uh, quite a ways. They're here at the bottom of Mount Sinai. And God gives them the instructions about the tabernacle how to build it, what they need to do, but he first asked them to receive an offering from everyone who would give with a willing heart. And we talked about that these people had been slaves in Egypt. They probably just made enough to get by on, just enough to get something to eat. But before they left Egypt, the Egyptians was wanting them gone so badly because of all the, the plagues that God brought upon the Egyptian people. That God kind of opened their, their hearts, the Egyptians' hearts. And when it was time for them to leave, he told his people go borrow from the Egyptian people. And they just loaded them down with all kinds of jewelry and all kinds of precious stones and uh, clothing and all that kind of stuff, so much so that uh, the Bible told them that they have to hang some of it around their children's necks to bring it out of there. So 
you're out in the middle of the desert, where do you cash in such stuff? <laughs> uh, they hadn't used any of it, but here they had it. And he tells them what he wants them to take an offering of, uh, different things. And I, I brought my book tonight and had it marked where I could find the place that tells us what all these things are for. God asked him to bring offerings of gold, silver, brass, blue, purple, and scarlet, and fine linen, goat's hair, ram skins, uh, badger skins, uh, acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil, and onyx stones, and I guess that's about it. But <clears throat> each of these things in, in the tabernacle has a meaning. All those items that God asked them to bring to him and give to him. He's about to give them instructions on how to build the tabernacle as well as all of the furnishings in the tabernacle. The materials are listed here. Now gold is a symbol of value. It was in those days and it still is today. It's, it's probably one of our more precious metals that, that is found anywhere in the earth. But it also represents some other things. It represents the Lord. The Lord himself, his person, his righteousness, and his mercy. And I want to share with you, I'll just read to you, and you can write down the references and find these in your own Bible. But Revelation 3.18 says, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. More than one thing is mentioned in that one verse of scripture. In my, uh, my book that I have here, it has in brackets after the word gold, speaking of righteousness. A lot of these things that God is going to ask them to build, to put in the tabernacle, are plated with gold. The Ark of the Covenant was plated with gold. We'll, we'll get to that over in other chapters. But everything, just about it in there, had something to do that had some gold on it if it was something that was valuable. Exodus 25, 17 says, And thou shalt make a mercy seat of pure gold. Now listen to that, pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof. I've noticed this in studying this, that God starts giving instructions about how to build the most central of all these things. And it's right back in the holiest of holies is where he starts. And gives instructions and comes on toward the gate and the, the thing that when people would enter, of course they'd come in from uh, going the other direction. The first thing that people would find when they come through the gate or the, the flaps of the, 
the 10 around there, would be the altar out there where sacrifices was made. In other words, sin had to be dealt with before they could go any farther. And it's amazing to me how God starts as he, <coughs> excuse me, as he's giving instructions on what to build and how to build it and those kind of things. He starts with the most important part back there in the Holy of Holies and works his way out to that altar. So God comes from one direction, we go from the other. We go in to meet with him. But silver is mentioned here also. We, we talked about that silver is representative of a ransom or redemption. We find this in, in the Bible and where God gave them orders there about what to bring in, in Exodus chapter 30, verses 12, 13, and 16. Uh, he says, When thou takest the sum of the children of Israel after their number, then shall they give every man a ransom for his soul unto the Lord. When thou numberest them, that there be no plague among them when thou numberest them. This they shall give every one that passes among them that are numbered half a shekel, that's a silver coin, half a shekel after the shekel of the sanctuary. A shekel is 20 geras. And half shekel shall be the offering of the Lord. And thou shalt take <clears throat> the atonement money of the children of Israel and shall appoint it for the service of the tabernacle of the congregation that it may be a memorial unto the children of Israel before the Lord to make an atonement for your souls. So the silver is a symbol of atonement or ransom. We, we understand the word ransom. That if somebody gets kidnapped and you want to get them back, you have to pay a ransom. Well, there's a price to be paid for sin, isn't there? And this is mentioning it here. Then he talks about bronze or copper or brass, whatever your Bible may say. This was a part of the judgment, a symbol of death, the death of Christ, of his bearing the judgment of sin for man. This is seen in the brazen altar, the place where the lamb was slain as the sacrificial offering on behalf of the people. This was a very important part, especially as they celebrated Passover, that this altar was kept busy because every family would bring that lamb or that goat and offer it as a sacrifice. Uh, Exodus 27.3 talks about some other parts of this altar. Thou shalt make pans to receive the ashes and shovels and basins and flesh hooks and fire pans. All the vessels for the altar thou shalt make of brass. So it speaks of judgment. And he's asked him to bring this as an offering. Then he starts talking about some materials, uh, fabrics and this kind of stuff. There's to be blue, purple, and scarlet yarn 
and fine linen. This is a combination of colors. Uh, blue is the color of the heavens above. We need to remember that. Blue is one of my favorite colors. Therefore, it is said to be a symbol of heavenly character of Christ. Uh, Hebrews 7, 26 says, For such an high priest became, became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. That's speaking of Jesus. Purple is the color of royalty. As a matter of fact, they put a purple robe on Jesus. And then stripped him of it. Purple is the color of royalty. Therefore, it is a symbol of Christ as the King of kings and Lord of lords. Mark 15, 17 and 18 says, And they clothed him with purple and plaited a crown of thorns and put it about his head and began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. Revelation 19, 16 says, And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. So the Jewish people were getting a glimpse of who Jesus is, even though most of them today even don't, don't, ex don't respect him as the Messiah. They, they believe he was a good man and that he was a prophet and all those kind of things, but most of them haven't received him. And from what I hear, I, I listen to some Jewish fellow every Sunday night as I go home on Moody Radio. And how do I know he's Jewish? Well, he'll say something in Jewish, in their language, whatever it is, and then he'll put it in English. But uh, he talks about how that they, they take the tabernacle and those kind of things and, and the Passover meal. And they show their friends and the neighbors how the connection is made between these objects and Jesus Christ. And at the Passover, the, the food that they eat and the ritual that they go through, that it all points toward Jesus. And that's how they're leading them to, to have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is through taking the Old Testament scriptures, which they're very familiar with, and pointing out how that even Jesus could be found in, in the Old Testament. Scarlet is a red color, and it symbolizes sacrifice. It was the blood that was required to pay for the sacrifice. As far as I know, all blood is red, isn't it? That's all I've ever seen is red. <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen it though of you. <laughs> Thank you for injecting that there, Doug. Scarlet or red symbolizes sacrifice and it pictures the entire scene of sacrifice and redemption. Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God, the one sacrificed to take away the sins of men. Hebrews 9, 13 and 14 says, For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctify to the purifying of the flesh, 
how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Hebrews 9, 19 and 20 says, For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and of goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the testament which God has enjoined unto you. And verse 28 of that same chapter says, So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Even the yarn and stuff that they brought, it was to be a symbol of Christ. And the, the tabernacle, even though it's very real, it's very symbolic. Everything in there has a symbol pointing to Jesus Christ. They were to bring white linen. White linen. White linen symbolizes purity and righteousness. The purity, righteousness, and holiness of God and the purity and righteousness, righteousness demanded by God. Now, I know that uh, a lot of the priestly garments were made out of this, but it was also used in the tabernacle uh, in places there. If you got that picture, you can look at it. Some of, some of that woven covering up there, the fine twisted linen, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn with cherubim embroidered by skilled craftsmen. That part of this was woven in there. But listen to what this portrays. Revelation 19.8 says, And to her, speaking of the church, and to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. Points to the righteousness of God's people. Revelation 3 says, He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed with white raiment. And in brackets says righteousness. And I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Revelation 7, 9 after this I beheld and lo a great multitude which no man could number of all the nations and kindred and people and tongues stood before the throne and before the Lamb clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. That reaches on down to even when we're raptured out of here and, and standing before the Lord. We're going to be clothed in that white linen. There was goat hair that was to be brought. I uh, remember being in Israel and uh, we stopped at a place over there where uh, a bunch of sheep herders and goat herders were there. And our tour guide was telling us all about the place and it's a place where we went up and looked at the valley of the shadow of death. And I saw their, their tents. They had pretty good sized tents. And they were all black. 
And I said something to our tour guide about that. And he said, you know what they're made out of? I said, no. He said, goat hair. He said, that's the women's job. So they, they take that goat hair and they weave it into those tents. He says, it takes them about a year to make one tent. Very intense work, no doubt. Well, this is what we're talking about tonight. The goat hair, which was to be used for the tent's covering. Now, there's three coverings that goes over this uh, holy of holies in there, the, where the tabernacle will be, or where the Ark of the Covenant will be. The goat hair is one of those coverings. These curtains of goat hair was most likely black in color. A set of 11 curtains were joined together to make one great covering for the tent. There seems to be a direct symbolism between the goat hair and Christ's relationship to sin, pointing to Christ as the sin bearer, appointed by God to bear the sins of the world. And he makes a comment about Stephen Oford, makes a significant comment about the scripture of goats. He says the goat in scripture is mentioned in connection with the sin offering and sinners. We read, take a kid of the goats for a sin offering in Leviticus 9.3. Take two kids of the goats for a sin offering on the great day of atonement in Leviticus 16. One kid of the goats for a sin offering unto the Lord shall be offered, Numbers 28.15. He shall separate them one from another as a shepherd divided his sheep from the goats representing the saved and the unsaved at the judgment of the nations, Matthew 25, 32. We studied that not long ago. So it is fairly clear that the tent of goat's hair speaks of the Lord Jesus as the divine sin bearer. Uh, if I remember correctly, they took two goats. They laid hands on one, confessed the sins over it. They killed one of the goats and sprinkled its blood the other one was run off into the wilderness, and that was called a scapegoat. That's, uh, we find that in, in the scripture. And this is what he says, Jesus became the scapegoat for the world. Instead of allowing the sting of sin to rest upon sinners, Jesus Christ offered himself as a sacrifice and as the substitute and savior of the world, as the sin bearer for the sins of all people of all generations. And he gives some scriptures to that. Isaiah 53, 12. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he has poured out his soul unto death. He was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Of course, that's Isaiah's prophecy concerning Christ. Galatians 1, 4 says, Who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father. And in Hebrews 9 again, So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. So the goat hair is very significant in, in the tabernacle. Then there were those... Uh, ram skins that were dyed red. 
we talked about that a little bit last week, how they, they uh, stripped the hair off of those goats, their ram skins, and dyed them red. I, I was reading this today, um, there where it says, the hides of sea cows provided a waterproof covering and camouflaging the rich interior from enemies and bandits. I'd never thought about that. They're carrying around tons of gold here. <laughs> Uh, the ram skins dyed red, went under the uh, skins of the sea cows or dolphins or whatever they are, and then the goat hair was on the bottom part. And all that, of course, protected from rain and the other things. The purpose of those tan ram skins was to provide a protective covering for the tent. It was layered between the goat hair and the badger or sea cow skin. And he says, there were the badger skins or sea cow skins. Probably the source of these was from the Red Sea. They were there close to the Red Sea. Uh, I was reading someone else's uh, work the other day. And they said these could have been porpoises or dolphins uh, because they're all found there in the Red Sea. But their skins, uh, they were very protective. They would protect from rain and sun, and, uh, whatever came that way. He says the source of this outer covering for the tabernacle probably came from the Red Sea. This durable, weather-resistant skin was the ideal choice to protect the tent from the hot sun, the drenching rains, and the piercing dust storms that swept across the desert. And then there's the wood. The acacia wood, as it's called in, in most Bibles. This was probably, uh, and I read this not in this book, but somewhere else that those acacia trees, they, they grew close to uh, fast-moving water. And whoever it was that wrote that said they're very similar in the way they look to our mimosa trees. You know what a mimosa tree is? And things, man, they'll multiply like crazy. <laughs> you get one in your yard and look out, you'll have a hundred before you know what's happening. But uh, it makes sense that they would be plentiful there. But he talks about these, uh, this wood it's in the area of the plains of Moab, slightly northeast of the Dead Sea. The Casey wood came from a tree that flourished in the wilderness. The Casey was an extremely hard wood that was a mixture of brown and orange in color. Well, that's about the color of mimosa wood if you've ever cut one of those trees down. During the period of the Old Testament, the tree was very plentiful as it grew in groves next to fast-moving bodies of water. It was the craftsman's prime choice for furniture because of its durability. It just lasted and lasted and lasted. And he talks about the Septuagint, uh, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, translates acacia as, quote, incorruptible wood. 
I get that incorruptible wood. And he goes on with a note. He says, in a world filled with corruption, Jesus Christ is the only person who is incorruptible. As the Achaia trees speak of durability and strength, Jesus Christ is the perfect picture of durability and strength. Jesus Christ is the only man strong enough to live a sinless life and take away our sins, to defeat sin and death on the cross. I've never really tied any significance into the wood because it's, most of it's going to be covered up, be covered with gold in some instances, be covered with the, the tent uh, makings and all those kinds of things and another. Then he talks about there's oil for the light. There's a, a seven-pronged candelabra, if you'll have it that way, that uh, this is for many, many hundreds and thousands of years has been one of the symbols of the Jewish people. When I was in Israel in 2010, we were walking around the old town of, of Jerusalem. And we came to a, a place and I saw this big glass, glassed in thing. And it was a seven pronged candelabra. And it probably stood 15 or 20 feet tall. And our tour guide said, this is already prepared to go in the temple when the temple is rebuilt. And you might wonder, well, how could they keep something like that from being stolen? It's guarded 24 hours a day, seven days a week by the Israeli soldiers standing out there with their machine guns in their hands. <laughs> so if you're gonna get that gold, you're gonna to have to go through them. But they have plans and that he told us, he said everything that is needed to rebuild the temple is in storage somewhere around Jerusalem here. He says, we, <laughs> nobody knows where it's all at because it's stored in different places, but uh, they're planning on building the temple. The only thing that's stopping them from doing is that Muslim mosque that's up on top of the Temple Mount there. Of course, if they do anything to destroy it right now, you'd probably get in a big war, big, big war, world war probably. But uh, just share that with you. Uh, there was oil for the light. The oil was made by crushing the olives from the olive trees. I thought that was kind of significant. I preached about Gethsemane Sunday. And that's what the word Gethsemane means. The oil press or the olive press. Um, the oil would be needed to provide continuous light for the sanctuary. That's the only light that's in there. Is that candelabra with the golden lampstand. <clears throat> Throughout scripture, the olive tree is a symbol of fullness and fruitfulness a choice tree among people. Thus the oil is a symbol of the fullness and fruitfulness of God's Spirit, a symbol of the anointing of God's Spirit. 
Let me read you some scripture. First John chapter 2 and verse 27. But the anointing, and in brackets it says the Holy Spirit, the anointing which you have received of him abideth in you. And you need not that any man teach you, but as the same anointing teacheth you of all things, and is truth, and is no lie, and even as it has taught you, you shall abide in him. The Holy Spirit even is represented in, in the Ark of the Covenant here, or the tabernacle rather. Judges 9.9 says, But the olive tree said to them, Should I leave my fatness, wherewith by me they honor God and man, and go to be promoted over the trees? <laughs> There's a parable there about the trees talking among each other, trying to get a ruler over them. In Jeremiah 11.16 it says, The Lord called the name a green olive tree, fair and of God, God, goodly fruit, with the noise of a great tumult. He hath kindled fire upon it, and the branches of it are broken. I thought about how Jerusalem was destroyed in AD 70. And probably the branches of that was broken. I know the, the city was burned. Then there's spices for the anointing oil and for incense. And when we get over to chapter 30, we'll find the list of ingredients that makes up this anointing oil. And every one of them has something to do with it. Um, there were onyx stones. Uh, our writer says these were semi-precious stones. The color of these stones is uncertain. The scriptures is clear of their purpose that they were to be used on the priest's ephod and breastplate. He talks about chapter 28, and we'll talk about that when we get there. Uh, he says the purpose of these stones, the Hebrew word for onyx is shoham. It comes from a root word meaning a flashing forth of splendor. There must have been some kind of stones that would show forth some kind of splendor. The names of the 12 tribes of Israel were engraved in, in these onyx stones, in these two onyx stones. He says the picture is this, in God's eyes, his people shine forth in splendor as precious gems. Just everywhere you look, there's something about God's people or his son. There were gems to be set in the pre-sephod and breastplate. And then he talks about the word sanctuary. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. And he says God had one main purpose for building the tabernacle. That he might dwell in a very special way among his people. The word sanctuary, Nick Dash, I guess is the way you pronounce it. I don't know, M-I-Q-D-A-S-H. It means a holy place, a hallowed place, a place sanctified or set apart for God. So God wanted the tabernacle to be holy, a hallowed place, a place sanctified and set apart for God. 
Seems like I've read that in the New Testament about we. We're the temple, aren't we? We're supposed to be sanctified and set apart for God. A place looked upon as being where God dwelt in a very special way. A place where God could live in a special way among his people. A place where God met with people and the people with God. A place where people worshiped God, received the forgiveness of God, and committed their lives to God. He makes a note that God took the initiative to build a relationship with Israel. We sometimes say, I found God. No, he found us. He searches for us. We don't search for him, really. Although the Bible says, seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. But God longs to be with his people to fellowship and commune with them. How do, can he do this? By planning a special place where he can meet with people and people can come to meet with him. In dealing with the ancient Israelites, this place was the tabernacle, the sanctuary. And he talks about the believer's body is now the temple or the sanctuary of God. Know you not that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. I just thought as I was reading that passage of scripture that I was called on to do a funeral a few years ago of one of my family members. A young lady, a beautiful young lady, who got hooked on drugs. She was found in a run-down motel, overdosed. And her family asked me to conduct the funeral. And I'll be honest with you, I'd rather been anywhere else than doing that funeral that night. Because uh, her and I were close. I had been her pastor when uh, she married into our family. And I began to pray and ask God what he wanted me to share and this passage of scripture came to my mind know you not that you are the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwelleth in you if any man defile the temple of God him shall God destroy for the temple of God is holy which temple you are I didn't go into a lot of details because everybody that was there knew the kind of life she'd been living. But I shared this passage of scripture. If any man defile the temple, him shall God destroy. She had defiled that temple. She was she was a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. She just like so many people today, got hooked on those drugs and couldn't get off of them. It just ruined her life. And I don't know how many family members came to me that night and said, thank you for preaching the truth. Even her kids told me that.
Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. He says, what? Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own. You are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Isn't that a wonderful passage? We are bought with a price. For that reason, we're to glorify God in our body and in our spirit. In other words, our life should show forth in such a way that people know there's something different about that person. They must belong to the Lord. Well, we're going to... Uh, close out tonight next week we'll try to pick up at verse 10 there and carry on but if you didn't get one of these things about the tabernacle Jonathan ran these off for us and it's a big help once we get into breaking down all these pieces of it you can see where it goes and all like that anyone with a question or a comment yeah yes Bob 45 foot long almost the width of the sanctuary 15 foot high, 15 foot wide, and they picked it up and carried it every time they moved. They break it down in pieces. Yeah. That must have been some ordeal. Yeah. Uh, it's just, and they did it because that's what God wanted them to do. Mm -hmm. there, were, there were people assigned to that job. And they had a fence around it that was 100 cubic foot long and five foot high. Yeah. Uh, and I remember someplace, and it says this, when they had this tabernacle set up, the poles stuck out both ends. Yeah. That you could see the poles at these people. They must have had 20 or 30 people on each pole. Carrying I don't know. There's a bunch of them. But uh, those poles were left in there, and they're plated with gold, too. We'll, we'll get into that. But uh, a lot of wealth there that was being carried around. Yeah. The, the Ark of the Covenant got captured once, didn't it? Uh, the Philistines, the best I remember, during uh, Saul's days. It's in a crate in Washington now. You think so? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Bible says it's in heaven. Now, uh, I watched the TV program. This guy, he tries to find out all those things, and they don't know if it's in Israel, or they don't know if it's hid somewhere else, but uh, I believe it was, was it when the temple was destroyed there in AD 70 that it kind of disappeared? There was no mention yeah. of the ark, you know. Yeah. They, they got it back because they put it on the card yeah, and it hit somebody and they died. Yeah, reached over to steady it and yeah. God zapped them. <laughs> but when, when it was destroyed, there was no mention. But when, when the temple was ransacked and they took all the implements, there was no mention yeah. of it. Uh, that, uh, that's been a great debate down through the years. But... Uh, Temple with their God and 
their God was sick, wasn't he? <laughs> Yeah, we better get rid of that thing. <laughs> well, yeah, it's interesting to study that. Okay. Well, thank you so much for being here tonight. And let's stand and we'll be dismissed in prayer. Yes. Before we pray, I, I took E.R. Rainwater to do a, a CT scan this morning. But I think in the last week, Cleveland was doing another, some kind of another test they did. After I got her back home, uh, she got a call from the Cleveland office for the, the test results were back, and they diagnosed her with Crohn's disease. So keep her in prayer. Okay. Why don't you just lead us in this prayer, Larry? Let me say just a word about uh, returning to me. I hope that you have your books and that you're in the process of studying those first five lessons this week and uh, come prepared Sunday morning in, in your groups to discuss those things. And it's, uh, it's exciting. I, I think God's doing a work through it in our lives and drawing us closer to Him. Thank you and good night.